Hi, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 12th of November 2020 Hong Kong Stories Podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. It's been hard keeping it together all these months. Hong Kong has been an upheaval for well over a year, and we see society changing before our eyes. Internally, many of us are conflicted as we adjust to new circumstances and new normals. But what helps us to get through is the people around us. Our storyteller today tells us of one of his stories about a difficult member of his community. After Dennis, we'll hear a story from Austin, originally published in 2018. Before we get to today's stories, though, a huge thank you hug goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We could not have asked to be in better company than our Hong Kong community. Thanks go out to our overseas listeners as well. This week particularly to listeners in Kashiwa in Japan, McLenny, Florida in the USA, and Mercury in France. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our 2020 show as part of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival is tomorrow night, Friday the 13th. We are sold out, but I have some good news for you. We will have a December show. It's in the works. I almost don't want to say it out too loud as it might jinx our chances of hosting our last live show of 2020. But on Thursday, December 17th, Gina will be hosting a show with the theme For You. Tickets will be available soon. Check the website hongkongstories.com for details. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. Now with the story from the June show, which was once the February show, which had the theme Fifty Shades of Red. Here is Dennis. Thirty-five years ago, I met Henry, a young man like me had mental illness. He had no jobs, no friends, always talked to himself in the street. At that time, my heart was red hot. I wanted to help him to have a better social life. I wanted to help him to have a better recovery. So, I brought him to my own church. There, I introduced him to my church brothers and sisters. She introduced him to join the youth fellowship. But Henry always stayed at the sister's place in the private path. Even during the worship, gradually the church members dislike him. One day, a senior church brother came to me, told me that they don't welcome Henry, and because I bring him here, they don't welcome me too. So, Emily and I left. 
but my heart was still red hot. So I brought him to my nearby community center. I introduced him to join the volunteer group, volunteer group to help the elderly. Among the volunteers, a young girl, Susan, became my good friends. Between my good friend, Sue and me had many good times there. But half a year later, she suddenly disappeared. Stopped all the connections with me. I was so unhappy, but I didn't know why. Two weeks later, a common friend came to me, told me that once Henry went to Susan, told her that I, me, always went to the temple to call for the prostitutes, and I. And Henry told Susan that I had already called got the sexual disease. What I didn't call for the prostitutes. I don't. I didn't got sexual disease. Why? Why he say we say that like that? I was very very angry. But after a few weeks, I forgave him. I understood that that. Because of his mental illness, I still talked to him. At the same time, I applied a job, a government job, a vacancy as a clerical assistant in the Kowloon Hospital Accounts Office. Since I got My mental illness, my working ability became very, very low. Only ten percent. I always lost my job. My living condition was very poor and very uncertain and unstable. Very unstable. I need this job very much because the government will protect the disabled staff. This job was very important to me. I got past the first interview, past the second interview. At the end of the interview, the officer told me that within one month, I will receive the notice letter. Then I stayed at home. Day by day, waited and waited. One month passed, still no letter. I called back to the personal department. The reply was that they already posted the employment letter two weeks ago. On the letter, they want me to start my work. One week before, because I did, I didn't appear there. Appear, I didn't appear. 
they they, they cancelled my opportunity. I was so disappointed, so unhappy. I didn't know why I didn't receive the letter. Several days later, I met Henry. I told him my disappointment and my unhappy. At that moment, I found that on Henry's face, it was very strange, full of hatred. He crying out, I like Susan. Susan, like me, you took away Susan from me. I hate you. I took your letter from your letter box. And ran away. My inner side was like a beast, roused and roused. My heart was like a volcano. An active volcano, very active. At that moment, I knew that I would very soon be broken down. I quickly got a test, went to the Princess Margaret Hospital, rushed into the casualty, required to transfer to the Kwaichung Hospital, the mental illness hospital. In midday, there I spent two months to settle down my emotion, to settle down my mental illness. Since then, my heart was no more red hot. It became cooler and cooler. Till now, I still will help the others who are in need. But I will keep my distance. And I will try my best to protect myself. Dennis's tale is a cautionary one of friendships gone awry, and we hope that you avoid such happenings and all your friends stay supportive and helpful. We support in our community by hosting free workshops, and they're starting again soon. Restrictions on gathering apply, but they are going up. Masks and precautions taken. Find the links to the workshops at hongkongstories.com. Now, here's a story that was told in the Hong Kong International Literary Festival in 2017. Here is Austin. So it costs $1.50 and change to do a load of laundry in this six-story stately residential apartment block that I live in in this college town. So to do a couple loads of laundry, some... uh, couple loads into the dryer, and your pockets are kind of jangling full of change as I walk down this creaky set of stairs into the subterranean zone with remnant pieces of carpet and 
discarded furniture and leftover books. But the idea is not to stay down there. It's to get right back up into the apartment where uh, there's an ambitious day ahead. You want to get things done and hone all seven of the habits of highly effective people. <laughs> but, but inevitably, when, you, when, I, when I get down into the, into the uh, basement, I meet Fred. Now, most of the tenants in the building, they try to avoid Fred, not because he's the handyman who lives down in the basement, but because he's the over-talkative, over-argumentative, over-opinionated handyman that lives <laughs> down in the basement. And uh, in this town that had an overabundance of professors and aspiring professors and aspiring wannabe professors, he could out-talk, out-argue, and outlast any of them. And uh, so usually people would try to take the other set of stairs up to avoid him. And it was true. Fred could, they, they would ask me, what, what do you guys talk about? Yeah, that guy's nuts. And it was, it was true. He could just drop these provocative, volatile comments out of nowhere. He would say things like, well, you know, this idea of gun control, it's really about one group of people who are forcing their fears on another group of people. I grew up on a place where guns were just tools. And if you took that bait, if you said something like, well, there, there are tools that can kill people, Fred, and you would be asking for an hour, hour and a half's worth of debate, <laughs> in which case someone would always leave enraged, and it was never Fred. And he, sometimes it looked like he was doing it on purpose, that he was enjoying it, goading people. And I said, why, why do you push their buttons like that? And he said, well, I, I'm not doing much. Uh, you know, these people are working with such intensity in their restricted and confined area. It's like they're in some sort of academic mind shaft. And when old Freddie comes along and I just open the door a crack and God forbid some fresh air should go down there or they get hit with some rays of common sense, they get all flustered and disoriented and annoyed. It's, I, I'm not, it's not me. I'd like to take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> Get, get a point, I guess. Uh, and so I'd put the laundry in and be ready to take off and start the day. But the day had already kind of started because Fred was talking about how he was raised, and it was not in a way that I was really familiar with. He was raised on a farm and he, in logging camps and um, amongst livestock. He was taking, could handle livestock. He would, and uh, he'd say, well, one thing that I, I really couldn't stand about some of the people that I grew up with is that they would call them dumb animals. And, you know, I had to get in a pen with them. And if you're next to a 2,000-pound steer and it doesn't like you, it will let you know. It will crush your ribcage against that side of the pen in a second with just a shake. So they're not dumb animals. You've got to treat them with respect. I thought, well, I, I never had any very strong opinions about livestock management, but now I do. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. I do. And somewhere around the... Uh, when it was leaving the wash cycle and going into the spin cycle, we get into the lower layers of Fred's history. He had been to Vietnam, and he was a demolitions expert. And I said, well, what, what did that involve? What was being a demolitions expert? And he said, what did that involve? That involved me being dropped into the jungle from a helicopter and trying to remove a landmine from under the foot of some poor kid and not get us both blown up in the process. Well, I, this was way before the movie The Hurt Locker, but I assume. Don't, didn't you have any protective gear or anything? And he said, 
You have to understand, by the time the helicopter got there, this kid's been standing on a landmine for two or three hours. He's drenched in sweat. His foot is shaking uncontrollably. In order for me to do my job, he's got to trust me. And how's he going to do that if I'm wearing body armor and a protective headgear? Besides, a mask would get all fogged up. I couldn't see anything. I never used it. And so load one would be going into the dryer, load two going into the machines. And Fred was always working. So you'd see him up on a ladder, or he'd be the lone man shoveling the, the sidewalk in the middle of a snowstorm to clear it out for the other tenants, or he'd be pulling a dumpster out late at night or pulling it back in early in the morning. And he would, you could see that sometimes he was in a lot of pain, and he'd be shifting as if he were moving his pain from one spot to another spot just to give him some rest, and he would bear his pain in a kind of prayer-like fashion with his head bowed and just eyes closed. And I saw him doing that once. I said, uh, you know, are you okay? Are, are you, did you injure yourself? He said, oh, I have pain coming out of so many places I can't keep track anymore. I, I, I was run over by a car a long time ago. So I thought, I really got to get upstairs, but okay, maybe five minutes. What, do you, what, what, what happened? And he said, what were you in a car accident? He goes, well, it was no accident. <laughs> so what does that mean? Uh, I, I lived next door to a couple before, and we shared a garage. And while the wife had very poor eyesight, okay, and, and the husband, he was having a series of affairs. But are we still talking about your car accident? Or what? <laughs> I said, hold on, I'm I'm getting there. And so one day I was over at the garage, and I was kind of bent over like this because it was jammed. And she pulls up in her car, and I wave to her. I say, oh, hello, how are you doing? I expect her to wave back. But instead, she steps on the gas and just runs right into me. And you jumped out of the way. No, she ran right into me and over me. Apparently, she had just found out about the affairs. I still don't get it, Fred. Well, I look a little bit like her husband. (laughs) We're kind of the same build and glasses and a mustache. And she drove over me, and she must have been really wanting to make a point because she then backed up over me (laughs) and then drove over me again. She was very thorough. I could hardly believe it. I mean, I told him, I can't can't believe it. And I I just felt that all this adultery and vengeful, murderous intent, and I just wanted to do my laundry, but maybe maybe five more minutes. So he said, it was one of the most excruciating periods of my life recovering. But the worst part was not the pain. It was when the doctor first came in, and he thought he was doing me a favor by saying, hey, Fred, I have to tell you, you're never going to be able to walk again. And I was infuriated. I was in a body cast, but I looked back at him and I said, I will walk again, and when I do, I'm going to celebrate by putting you on my shoulder and walking you around this building. And they thought I was, they thought I was delusional. But Fred somehow actually recovered maybe all those years of very... Uh, tough physical labor and his natural strength and resilience. He did 
was able to uh, walk again, work again. And I thought he must have given that doctor really something to ponder. He said, oh, I didn't leave it to chance. I showed up in his office one day, and I told him, today is the day. (laughs) And I scooped him up, put him on my shoulder, went down the stairs, and I walked him around the hospital. I thought, he just let you pick him up like that? (laughs) But as always in these cases, he would exchange my doubts and my uncertainties and my skepticism for raw facts, physical and psychological, and in such a way that it felt like pragmatic knowledge that you better hold on to because you might need to know this. He said, well, he didn't go willingly. That's why I put my finger in the air. So when his attention went high, I went low. said, and mind you, it is not easy to carry somebody who doesn't want to be carried. You got to keep jostling them around and shifting so they're, they're in a perpetual state of instability. Otherwise, they just jump off. Anyway, I got back to the, by the time I got back to the office, the secretary had called security, and there was all this commotion. But by that time, he knew that I wasn't going to hurt him, and so he just waved them off. And I told him, listen, as a doctor, you have a great amount of power and influence over your patients. Do not ever tell someone something like that again. You do not understand all that people are capable of. So, I know. Yeah. So, so the lights, the the sun's actually starting to come down at this point. The heat from the dryers has long gone. People are coming back from their days out, pulling their bikes in and going over to the racks. And uh, we're still talking, but. He had gone through his personal history so much that sometimes his attention would turn to me. And he said, he would say, so what are you doing tonight? Are you taking some nice gal out somewhere special? And I remember one time I said something like, um, well, I think at this time in my life, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to um, not be in a relationship. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't ask you if you were in a relationship. I asked you if you were taking some nice girl out. I, I, sometimes I don't understand the language that you people use. <laughs> <clears throat> you make it so complicated. But Fred himself came from a big family of uh, very strong and wonderful, loving women. He was the youngest. All his siblings had gone. And uh, the men, they were all out in the logging camp, or they had drifted off, or disappeared, or died. So in the process, uh, Fred had developed this uh, incredible appreciation of women, and almost a kind of connoisseurship of women in general. One time he said, I was down at the bar, and there was many lovely ladies sitting right at all at the same table. I introduced myself, and they were playing some music, and before you know it, we were all dancing, and I was twirling them around one by one. I said, hey, Fred, how did you manage that? That's pretty good. I said, 
Well, it wasn't a trick, Austin. <laughs> I, I listen to them. I appreciate their feminine charms. I enjoy them, and they enjoy being enjoyed. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I, that reminds me. I'm going to go the, back there tonight. So if you don't mind, I have to go. But it was nice talking to you, Austin. So I was left with my tower of laundry to balance back up the creaky stairs. And for many weekends, weekend mornings, it would be like that. I would listen to Fred because Fred would tell me about a life that was not mine. And he would tell me about experiences that I would never have. And many of them I would never want to have. So, <laughs> um, But on occasion, he would drop a crystalline gemstone right in front of me in a way that I couldn't get anywhere else. And once he said to me, um, you know, the most important quality in this world is courage. And I thought I had him. I said, but Fred, don't all the great traditions of religion say that love is the most important quality? And you could see he was thinking about it for a second, but more feeling around inside for a second. He said, that is true. But in order to love truly and deeply, you need great courage. But that is pretty good, Fred. I'm going to hold on to that one. That's pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.